welcome back for another week of the NBN Weekly Recap Podcast. Uh, I'm James Crisofoli. And I'm Cameron Peters. I'm a politics reporter with NBN. Um, so let's dive right in. Uh, a lot of interesting news this week. Um, we're going to start with the Australian election. Um, so one person running on the issue of climate change. and um, Lee Party. Yes. And, um, and then a conservative coalition who had been in power for a long time and... Um, the most people expected the Liberal Party, uh, the Labor Party, to win, but against all odds, and they even were even calling it a miracle. The Prime Minister Scott Morrison retained power, um, and essentially it was has been being kind of seen as a, a referendum on climate change in the country. Um, and so the yeah, they barely the the Liberal National Coalition, which is actually their. Uh, rightist right-wing coalition um, barely maintained their majority um, against all the odds, um, and <clears throat> the as I said, the election kind of frames it, it's it's framing the issue of climate change, and it's being seen as like um, uh, you know a, setting a precedent for a lot of of Europe and and the upcoming elections in the United States. Um, and seeing how candidates can run on the issue of climate change and whether or not that resonates with voters. Um, and uh, the, basically the uh, conservative coalition there kind of ran, they, they combated that issue by running on the issue of uh, cost. They, they said that the combating climate change will cost too much in terms of um, spending the government spending money and costing jobs. Um, and I don't know if that was actually those those uh, that was actually accurate for their country. I, hopefully, I don't think it was, but um, they were able to sell that. So it's just kind of it's been interesting to see how people have interpreted how they framed the issue of climate change in that election. Yeah, this is really interesting for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's kind of disturbing because regardless of how you feel about the politics of things, left or right, scientifically we are running out of time to deal with climate change issues. So it's not good to see the party that's promising to take bold action on that, lose the election. But it is really interesting, particularly in the context of the Green New Deal in the United States, um, because that uh, that plan incorporates jobs and makes them a really key element. Um, so it's interesting, it's uh, good to see that the U.S. is considering the jobs argument and the jobs aspect of climate change and how to address that, because it sounds like that was really a crux in the Australian um, election. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see how uh, more comprehensive plans like the Green New Deal, which is admittedly not very well fleshed out yet, play out in the U.S. and maybe similar plans in Europe compared to how this plan um, went in Australia. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think people th- this kind of election this election kind of showed that people are afraid of drastic change, and when there are these, uh, you know drastic risks that you can articulate and the conservative party did so, um, then, and the, the, you know, other side doesn't have any responses, then it's, it's dangerous and you're not going to get people to really support, um, dramatic measures. So yeah, definitely some takeaways for the U S election. Um, next going on to the, uh, Austrian, um, Austrian from Australian to Austrian politics, um, both things that we are both experts in, right Cameron? (laughs) Um, but so Austria, um, the Austrian uh, chancellor has uh, has called for snap elections to be held in September. Um, so the motivation for that was his vice chancellor. Um, there was just a, a video release this weekend of this vice of the Austrian vice chancellor um, and one of his um, uh, subordinates uh, in Ibiza uh, meeting with a Russian investor who was offering to buy the 
um, the biggest Austrian newspaper uh, in circulation um, and basically support his far-right party. The vice chancellor is from this far-right party called the Freedom Party. And she, she wanted to buy this newspaper, um, use it to uh, express support for his party, and in exchange, the vice chancellor was offering contracts um, for the Rus- for uh, her and her investment and for uh, the Russian government, um, I believe. So uh, that video leaked, and he res- immediately resigned and blamed it on, I think, drinking and stupid behavior and whatever, made excuses. But uh, the, the chancellor, who was not from the same party, is from a more centrist right party, um, denounced him and, and agreed to call for snap elections in September. So who is actually going to be leading the government until those elections is still kind of up in the air a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, kind of a scary um, thing to have happen. And the Freedom Party was also kind of part of this European far-right nationalist party mm-hmm. kind of coalition movement. Right. Yeah, Salvini in Italy with the League is kind of organizing and AFD and Marine Le Pen. Uh, he was kind of part of that. So we may see the Freedom Party you know, slide slide a little bit right now in support. Um, that's going to damage them. But yeah, Austria is kind of, or yeah, Austria is kind of in flux right now. Uh, yeah, I mean the interesting thing in the last few European elections in the Ukraine, in Italy, um, Italy and Spain, we've been mm-hmm. able to see uh, a little bit of a starting to be a backlash against some European far right movements. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see if that can be carried through into November. Um, I think. James said something like Freedom Party is almost guaranteed to lose seats after this, but we'll, we'll be interested to see how many. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, and especially um, with if, if this will reflect on the other nationalist parties like um, Salvini's party and, um, and AFD uh, and whether or not they can kind of separate themselves or, or if that will affect um, Austria's position with, within the broader European context. Yeah. Also, we have uh, European Parliament elections, I believe, the only directly elected um, positions in the European Union coming up soon. So that might be an interesting preview of what direction Europe as a whole mm-hmm. is leaning politically. Yeah, I was about to uh, say that. Uh, Salvini and his coalition of nationalist parties just held a rally this week. Uh, Le Pen was there. The leader of AFD was there. Yeah. Um, and there were tens of thousands of supporters. So they're really riling up the base um, and trying to campaign, uh, launch a, a really aggressive campaign before these elections. And, and, you know, a lot of places are seeing growing support for their parties individually. So we'll see if that translates into the EU scale. Yeah. And we should mention for listeners who don't know, AFD is Germany's alternative for Deutschland party. Mm-hmm. So they are um, extremely far right flirting with neo-Nazi mm-hmm. ideology. Um, a pretty scary group just objectively mm-hmm. um, among some of the other far right parties in Europe that are varying degrees of extreme. Mm-hmm. Um Another interesting, um, but probably more uh, optimistic note um, internationally. Yeah, um, Taiwan, uh, their parliament passed um, essentially same-sex marriage legalization law um, uh, this week. Uh, So essentially what had happened was two years ago, their court ruled that a law banning same-sex abortion was unconstitutional. Same-sex marriage. You said abortion. What did I say? Abortion. Abortion? Oh, God. Same-sex abortion. I'm already on, on to the next case, uh, on to the next um, news story. Um, but, yes, yeah, sorry. Same-sex, a law banning same-sex marriage was unconstitutional, um, and it gave the parliament two years to rectify this um, or else um, 
I was about to say abortion again. <laughs> Same-sex marriage would be legal um, in two years from that ruling. So it's been two years since that ruling, and just a few days before that that um, automatic law would have taken place, their parliament passed um, a law legalizing same-sex marriage. People are very happy in the country. LGBTQ advocates are very happy, but there are a lot of critics um, still saying that it's you know it's the very minimum of the law. It, it's it's the baseline, um, and it doesn't do enough. Doesn't go far enough. For example, for um, adoption laws um, and for actually enc- uh, encoding um, you know full civil rights for same-sex marriages. It essentially only allows same-sex couples to uh, obtain marriage registration, but beyond that, there's um, there's not much that it does to ensure actual legal equality. So it's definitely a first step. People are happy, but there's there's more to do. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a big difference between legalization of same-sex marriage and um, actually protecting civil rights for same-sex couples. Mm-hmm. But um, South Asia and Southeast Asia have traditionally lagged on this as an issue um, compared to the rest of the world. So it's great to see Taiwan leading the way. Hopefully that'll mm-hmm. reflect a, a trend going forward. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, we should say that this is the first um, country to legalize same-sex marriage in Asia, which is a, a big deal. So now, what I, what, where my mind was already going, um, the recent abortion laws passed by Missouri and Alabama. Yes. Is that, is that correct? Do you want to go over this story? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so Missouri and Alabama, in quick succession last week, passed two just incredibly draconian, restrictive abortion laws. Alabama, which has been getting a lot more attention, it was passed first, and it's a little bit more extreme, mm-hmm. banned all abortion with no exceptions for rape or incest. The only twos was that up to six weeks or was that all abortion? I believe that was all abortion, full stop. Um, okay. With no exceptions for, as I said, rape or incest. The only exceptions are health the mother, but that's a pretty pretty minor category. And it also imposed um, uh, up to a 99-year prison sentence on doctors who perform abor- abortions and made it a felony. Um, so... Obviously, incredibly, incredibly draconian, one of the most restrictive abortion laws in more than a decade, I believe. Um, Missouri's law, which followed a few days later, was similar. It um, banned all abortions after a relatively short period, I believe it was six, either six or eight weeks, but had a lot of similar provisions to the Alabama law. Um, but I want to focus kind of broadly on the context of both of these laws being passed. Mm-hmm. So we have a conservative majority in the Supreme Court now with uh, Justice John Roberts as the swing vote, which isn't much of a swing vote. He traditionally votes with the um, the, the right-wing side of the court, mm-hmm. which means um, some activists are saying that Roe v. Wade could well be in danger. Um, and I think from a um, politics standpoint, these laws, as much as... Um, being an actual attempt to ban abortion on the state level are trial balloons trying to get a case to the Supreme Court to strike mm-hmm. down Roe v. Wade nationally. Um, it remains to be seen whether or not they will stand up in lower courts because both of these laws are pretty extreme even by the standards of some of the heartbeat bills and stuff that places like Ohio have been passing lately. Um, it's possible they won't make it to the Supreme Court, but I think we can expect to see a lot of similar laws with varying degrees of severity from, from Republican politicians going forward. Mm-hmm. That's exactly uh, my, my thoughts. Um, this is definitely a, a, a targeted campaign to, to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, and yeah, they're just conservative go- uh, state governments are throwing everything at the wall that they can to try and see what sticks. Um, we should say uh, President Trump came out with a tweet saying that he 
does not support these laws, that he he supports exceptions for rape, incest, and threatening the life of the mother in terms of um, when abortion should be legal. Um, but, uh, yeah, essentially, we're, we're going to see these now work their way through the courts. I don't know if any one of the ones that have been big in the news this week will ultimately be the one to make it to the Supreme Court, but... Uh, conservative state governments are are continuing to to pass laws, um, and one I think is bound to get to the highest court. Um, so this is really an important issue, um, and yeah, um, the, the the people in these states will will will, will not be able to get a, any abortions in states that already do not have. Um, nearly any providers that can provide abortions. Yeah, I mean, the one important thing to note is these laws do not have majority support <laughs> even in the Deep South, even in the most conservative parts of Alabama. Um, polling suggests that these complete and total bans on abortion with no exceptions for rape, incest, act, are somewhere in the vicinity of upper 20s to 30% support, so pretty minority support um, among the electorate, um, kind of being driven by a even more extreme uh, group of lawmakers. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting, especially um, with potential to become an issue in 2020. Uh, We'll see how that goes. Okay, so on to the last story um, we had slated. Uh, President Trump is allegedly considering um, issuing pardons for a series of military uh, officers accused of war crimes. Um, He... uh, he asked for pardon files, which is something that the Department of Justice does where they uh, amalgamate information about these these crime, alleged crimes and the officers and what they've been doing in mitigation and all these different factors. Um, and then that goes into the president's decision for whether or not to make a pardon. Usually these take months, but President Trump is planning on issue uh, – uh, supposedly he's – yeah, reportedly, reportedly he's trying to um, – Yes, he's trying to. Uh, he wants to issue these pardons by or on Memorial Day. Um, so, uh, yeah, and these 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 officers include uh, Chief Edward Gallagher, who's been in the news lately, um, who was uh, a, Na- a Navy SEAL, and he. There were just awful stories from his um, uh, his subor- subordinates. Yeah, yeah his, um, other um, seats. So he was a um, platoon leader, leader and other mm-hmm. special officers. operations chief. Yeah, um, but other. Other SEALs in his platoon reported SEALs, some yeah. <laughs> really, really abhorrent, just horrific war crimes. Yeah, they, there were um, stories about him sitting up in a tower in, I believe, Afghanistan um, with a sniper and just picking off civilians and uh, how the op- how the SEALs would have to fire warning shots to get the civilians to, to flee before he would be able to shoot them. It's just awful, awful things. And um, we, we, I mean... Would like I would I personally would like to see more investigation into those allegations, um, and see what what a trial would would bring about. So uh, and that would a pardon would obviously um, would would mitig- would obviate that. So um, but but yeah, just awful awful things. And uh, that he was just one of, of a few of several, and we don't know the scope of how many he's actually President Trump is actually considering. But numerous people who are killed of, are accused of killing unarmed civilians or. Um, peeing on the body of an ISIS fighter, just mm-hmm. awful things. So, Yeah, it's, it's interesting to note a pardon is normally for someone who is guilty of crimes. In Gallagher's case, at least, he has not yet stood trial before mm-hmm. a military uh, court, I believe. So I'm not actually sure how that would function if yeah. there's an um, implicit admission of guilt, as in, I think, the case of Joe Arpaio, who accepted a pardon prior to a verdict being rendered, or what would happen there. Mm-hmm. Um, even, his, even the Gallagher's lawyer came out saying we want to be able to vindicate him mm-hmm. at a trial, but 
but I guess we'd welcome any inter- intervention from the president. So, yeah, um, really, uh, <laughs> I don't know who Trump's trying to appeal to with these with these moves, but yeah, I mean, Trump has been on the record advocating for war crimes in the past um, in several cases. Um, which you can absolutely probably Google pretty easily, Trump war crimes, and you'll get results. I mean, is he just trying but, to come out as tough on Yes, that's absolutely it. And, yeah. I mean, okay. that was one of his lines on the campaign trail, um, talking about a, a completely fictionalized story about General John J. Pershing um, uh, yes. dipping bullets in pig's blood mm-hmm. um, while fighting in the Middle East. Which I um, learned from a historian about the Philippines, and he, uh, that was not true. <laughs> yeah, absolutely patentedly untrue, mm-hmm. but he was recommending returning to those fictionalized tactics as a way to get tough in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, Any other stories that uh, piqued your interest this week? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to talk about um, Iran a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things, frankly, are getting kind of scary in Iran. Um, We talked about last week, I believe, the aircraft carrier heading to the Persian Gulf. Things need to heat up a little bit since then. I believe we've evacuated, uh, at least partially, our embassy in Baghdad. Mm -hmm. That's in Iraq, but close to Iran, within striking distance of Iran, if Mm -hmm. tensions continue ratcheting up there. Um, this seems to be really heavily driven by John Bolton, our uh, ultra-hawkish national security advisor, mm-hmm. and to a lesser extent, Mike Pompeo, who's also pretty hawkish. Trump has actually gone on record this week saying he does not want war with Iran, but nonetheless issued a very threatening tweet today, um, which I believe <coughs> was paraphrasing Fox News, something to the end of uh, the effect of, if Iran threatens the U.S. again, there will be consequences. No one is allowed to threaten the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, standard saber-rattling. Yeah, that's... But, sorry. Oh. That, that, I was just going to say that's the big shift we've seen this week is that Trump is now sort of reversing his position. And we we were kind of seeing that the influence of John Bolton is very strong in the White House because the, a lot of those actions seem like they were Bolton's uh, moves in terms of moving the military uh, or moving the aircraft carrier to Iran. Um, but now Trump is who has had a history, long history of wanting to get out of foreign intervention and get out of wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, is kind of showing his, his true colors a little bit and, and saying that um, he doesn't really want a war with Iran. But, but yeah, as you said, he's still trying to appear tough. And I don't know if that, you know, he's done that with China, with North Korea, um, and then reverse positions. So not sure if that means much. But, um, but yeah, it's definitely, definitely not a, a good position to be in. Yeah, I mean, this is a vastly complex issue with a lot of history behind it. There's a lot more we could talk about here, but a few things worth noting. One, the intelligence that sparked our moving an aircraft carrier into the Gulf. There's a story earlier this week about other Western countries' intelligence services not being able to corroborate it, mm-hmm. the which, is, yeah, which is very scary because John Bolton has been in the White House, uh, White House before. He was in the Bush White House. That's Bush 43. Um, so... He was involved in the run-up to the Iraq War. We know he has absolutely no issue falsifying or manipulating intelligence, um, as we know from the entire WMDs thing, which turned out to be completely untrue. Mm -hmm. So we know that, and we know he wants war with Iran. He has published an op-ed previously saying um, the solution to Iran potentially having a nuclear bomb is to bomb Iran. He Mm -hmm. had some very pithy and horrifying headline for a New York Times Mm op-ed. So... No, he he wants regime change in Iran, absolutely. Yeah. And the the big... um, It's the four Bs, right? Those are the big influencers in the White House right now for in terms of Iran. It's Bolton, and then Bibi Netanyahu, uh, Mohammed bin Salman um, of uh, Saudi Arabia, and Mohammed bin Zarif of um, UAE. United Arab Emirates, 
they're all obviously they have close relationships. Ben Salman specifically with Kushner, they're all tightly connected to the White House. Uh, Netanyahu and Trump have a very close relationship, so they're all trying to get in his ear and get him to be more aggressive against Iran because they're especially those latter three actors all want Iran ousted um, and want regime change in the region for their own interests. So, And, of course, three of those four, the U.S., uh, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE are all part of a coalition force fighting in Yemen right now. Um, the U.S. is only in a supporting role, um, providing munitions and the like, but UAE and Saudi troops um, are on the ground there and bombing there. And that is um, often spun as a proxy war with Iran, mm-hmm. um, uh, sectarian Sunni versus Shia Muslim tension. It's a lot more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned that there's already um, uh, Iran versus uh, Gulf state tensions brewing in that conflict. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. Sorry we might have run a little bit long there, but um, we will see you next week. Have a good week. <laughs>